0: She said we are recording. I'm John Moorhead and I am the host of the Faith Matters podcast and I'm privileged to have as my guest Corey Wilson. This is a guy that I've known and worked with a little bit over the years. I'll read his bio here. Um, Corey B. Wilson is Jake and uh, Betsy Tulse. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Tuls. Yeah. Associate Professor of Missiology and Missional Ministry and directs the Institute for Global Church Planting and Renewal at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's also the co-author of Work and Worship, Reconnecting Our Labor and Liturgy. Corey, welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you, John. It's wonderful to have this time with you. I look forward to the conversation.
0: Well, I've had the privilege of working with you in a couple of venues. Um, One was uh, when when you were at Fuller, uh, you were one of the co-founders of Fuller's uh, Interfaith uh, Dialogue Journal. Uh, which is a great publication. And then you were one of the folks behind, uh, there was a consultation on evangelicals and Islamophobia uh, that was held there at your institution. So I've I've always enjoyed uh, the opportunity to work with you and the, the perspective that you bring to it. And I'd like to begin there. Um, can you tell a little bit about your background, how you Uh, your your academic studies, but how did you develop this interest and passion and the perspective that you bring to multi-faith engagement or interfaith or whatever you want to call it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in in an evangelical uh, family and church, uh, uh, you know, kind of the Bible church movement uh, in the Sierra Nevadas of California. And, um, you know, in in that context, um, you know, it was a more rural setting in the mountains, and there wasn't a whole lot of religious diversity or, you know, ethnic diversity, right, Um, and so there wasn't a whole lot of, I didn't grow up really interacting with people that much, at least that were explicitly um, of another religion, particularly Mormons, Um, after the fact, I found out, like, when I graduated from high school, like, oh, that person was Mormon, I had no idea, you know, Mm. Um, it just wasn't really at the forefront, and so, you know, I'm really grateful for that, for the, 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 training and the development that i had in that evangelical bible church but in that in those contexts when it came to interfaith and you know engagement um religious conversations or dialogue it was always around like apologetic debates you know where you get one person in the ring from your tradition and then the person from the other religion and you know they duke it out kind of like david and goliath and we each cheer you know for our our hero we think and our second,
0: side is uh, Goliath, right? We're the big guy or the hero. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know, there was always something that I noticed though, like an anxiety that would come up, as if like my faith and the validity of my faith depends on that person in the ring on our behalf, right? And and you know, I wasn't a philosopher, um, wasn't didn't really have that kind of bent. Um, I didn't really care about academics when I was in high school or first part of university um so I just didn't have any interest like oh that's what inter-religious engagement looks like I don't want to be a part of it because I'm not really a philosopher I kind of felt it was a little bit like mean-spirited and I felt a lot of anxiety of mm-hmm. like oh my gosh my faith's at stake here you know so it wasn't until um years later um you know I had already been a pastor and taught at the public university and in, in that context got to meet people from um, a lot of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. And, you know, I had Hindu students, you know, and just, and we did experiential learning. I taught business management. I just had just different, you know, students that would respond to different uh, experiential learnings in different ways. And I would get an in, a window into um, their religious orientation. And I remember one woman, um, one student um, was from India and I did this exercise trying to help the students. This is a public university. and trying to teach them about business management, but trying to talk about culture and ritual within the workplace and how these shape and communicate to us, these rituals, these practices. And so I actually washed um, my students' feet at one point. And um, I brought a woman and a man. I'd, I'd approached them before and say, I'd, I'd like to have used you as volunteers and um, uh, I'm not gonna tell you what it is until we get there. And if you don't feel comfortable, I understand. And so I'd do that, but then I'd turn the towel over, I'd wash their feet and everybody else in the class would be in the circle. Um, and then after I wash their feet, I'd say, now, if you feel comfortable, you go and do likewise. And so, um, and then that sometimes in some classes it would go and I'd actually have to cut it off because so many people would walk, you know, it kept passing on. These two would wash another two and it kept getting passed forward. Other times it was just kind of a fall dud, you know, people didn't want to do it. But I remember one student, um, she was from India, um, a foreign Exchange student. And she said, and reflecting on this as a class afterwards, she said, I didn't, you know, in my tradition, she said, um, in my religious tradition, um, you know, we would wash maybe a holy man's foot, feet. And then we would drink the water as kind of an atonement for our sins. Mm. And so I didn't feel, I don't feel worthy to have someone else wash my feet. So I, I, didn't, I didn't participate in this. And that was, you know, coming at it from, I was in a different institution. I wasn't coming as a pastor, I was coming as a professor. And so my context wasn't there to really um, probe too deeply into her religious orientation, but being in that position of just being a genuine interest, uh, you know, inquisitor uh, into people's lives and, you know, what do they bring into the business, the workplace, um, uh, It was really fascinating to me, and so it wasn't until years later. I was in seminary. Fast forward, you know, ten years almost, and I, I got to know Rich Mao and work with Rich Mao from uh, from Fuller Seminary, and he brought me in to interreligious dialogue. Um, there was one one or two sermons I had heard from Presbyterian preachers. One Steve uh, Brown that kind of helped me a bit. Uh, based off of some work in Utah between evangelicals and Mormons. And he told a story about this pastor who was reaching out to Mormons and building relationships and finding some commonality. And, um, and this was a story from Christianity today. Hmm. And um, Steve Brown was telling the story. And he said that, that that, pastor caught a lot of flack from his church members and Steve Brown was commenting, well, this guy is exhibiting grace. You know, why wouldn't you, you know, um, well, you applaud that? And I, I, for me, that was, I was like, oh my gosh, what? You know, but Steve Brown, who I trusted said this, right? right? Um, so I was in this kind of tension, like, okay, yeah, I do believe in grace. Well, why, you know, Steve Brown is saying we should exhibit that towards our interactions with Mormons. Then I had, I met Rich Mao. He pulled me into conversations with, uh, Jews, Muslims, and Mormons. And I got to see it in action, a different way. It wasn't this apologetic debate in the rain, right? right? It wasn't this kind of like, well, you do whatever you want, you know, anybody can believe what they want, we're all the same. It was, you know, it was I got to see firsthand how you could have convictions and also be civil. You can, you can be committed to your tradition, but also take a genuine interest to learn from and learn with people of other religions. And so what I got to see with Rich Mao and his counterpart. Um, Robert Millett from BYU was a different way. Both men took their faith very seriously, but it didn't, I didn't have that anxiety. Oh my gosh, we're going to fight and who's going to win. And, you know, like a wrestling match, you know, pinning each other to a ground. It wasn't that, but we got to, the cool thing was we got to see, I got to see a much deeper, how their, the religious experience and the community of the, uh, you know, of the Mormon community, I got to see it at a much deeper level than I would have had, if I took the apologetic kind of debate at a distance, they would never open up and let me in to see their heart, to weep with me, to share their joys, to talk about their families. So that was kind of a little bit of the evolution is that I basically got pulled into these pre prior experiences. And then, um, yeah, that, uh, I got to see the fruits of this, like, Oh, this is humanizing. I like who I am. I'm learning about myself and God through this, but I'm also, more committed to Scripture and to Jesus than I was before I engaged in this dialogue. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my my background and journey to this point.
0: Yeah, I appreciate hearing that that story. I don't think I knew uh, much about that prior. But, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to hear people's journeys and how they come to it. Now, we're going to be talking in this uh, podcast about your contribution in the book, Talking Doctrine, Mormons and Evangelicals in Conversation. How right. did you get involved in that? Was, did, uh, did they approach you and say, hey, would you contribute a chapter? Were you aware of it? Was it part of the, the ethos of Fuller? What's the story there?
1: So there's been, um, all the way back in 2001, uh, Robbie Zacharias um, was the first um, uh, evangelical to, to speak at uh, the Mormon uh, Tabernacle since Dwight L. Moody. Mm -hmm. So it had been a hundred years and Dr. Mao, Rich Mao, he opened up the, and introduced Ravi Zacharias. And it was this evangelical uh, Latter-day Saint kind of commonality meeting there, right. And in this, um, in this space, and they brought in Ravi and then they had some other um, church leaders speak. And it just was providing a different way uh, to interact. And um, that was the, um, that's the, the event where rich Mouse opened up by saying, we owe you Latter-day Saints an apology. We've, for too often we've told you what you believe without ever bothering to ask you. And in that way we've b- borne false witness. We've broken um, uh, the ninth commandment, and b- bore false witness against our neighbors. And we owe you an apology for that. Although the differences between us are very real and important, we should not have done that. So um, after that, what happened is it launched um, this Mormon evangelical dialogue with Rich Mao and uh, Robert Millet as the two uh, leaders from each community bringing together scholars. Sometimes it's as small as 12 times, it's been as big as 30, twice a year. um, Since 2001, 2002, uh, Greg Johnson um, was one of the, really the, uh, and, and Craig Blomberg were the two that really got this launched um and um standing together greg johnson he's a pastor there in in utah um got that launch but there's been this scholarly dialogue for twice a year since 2001 2002 i joined in 2008 and so this is really a a growing out of my own uh, theological studies i was a phd student when i wrote that article or that chapter and um but what we wanted to do in the book was to uh, provide, like, just give a broader world or audience a little bit more of this third way, right? It's not the kind of progressive liberal, like, watered down differences, you know, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not the apologetic kind of fighting. It's a third way of it doing this, you know, in a religious engagement. And so that book is kind of giving people a taste of that. Um, of, you know, there's a chapters by Latter-day Saints and by evangelicals kind of paired throughout the book.
0: So was it a a natural outgrowth of those conversations?
1: Yes and no. I mean, you know, um, yes, it it was a natural outgrowth of that. It wasn't, uh, I think it was more of, you know, having been engaged in these conversations for so many years, some, for some people, two decades, there's a lot of things that we've learned, a lot of our own research interests, Burned uh on by these conversations and so each person kind of contributed kind of their piece their area of research that has been in conversation or come out of the conversations we've had as as a group um, and so yeah there's different you know chapters covering different different topics you know, that are of interest to the each author
0: now somehow this book had escaped my radar normally i'm pretty good at keeping on top of what's out there but you and i it had a prior conversation uh, as a result of you coming across uh, my latest book, A Charitable Orthopathy, on the importance of the emotional component for yeah. evangelicals and relating to people in other religions. And you happened to mention and follow-up uh, this book, Talking Doctrine. And uh, so I went ahead and, and uh, picked up a copy, and I was blown away because it, it uh, is doing something different in Mormon evangelical dialogue. It, in my opinion, I think many times... Uh, Mormons have come more towards us than we have towards them in terms of dialogue topics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we we tend to look at certain doctrines where we uh have disagreements. And as you know, that's not how Mormons tend to be wired. They don't have this doctrinal emphasis. So I was pleased to see new ground covered. There, there's much more that we can do. Your chapter is titled Temple Garments: a case study in the lived religion of Mormons. Mm-hmm. I love that. Now, I want to unpack that chapter. Can you talk about this, for those who, who don't work in religious studies and this type of thing, what is a, reli- a lived religion perspective and how does it differ from other ways in which one might approach religion?
1: Yeah, yeah, so there's, you know, <clears throat> there's different categories to name these realities, but fundamentally it's, you know, um, there, you know, one of the, I guess, the, one of the classic ways of studying religion, this would have grown out of the 19th century kind of scholastic, you know, academic, uh, milieu would have been more as an outsider, you know, this kind of I'm a disinterested, a, a neutral, objective observer of this other religion. And I will pick up, you know, uh, you know, uh, the Quran, or I'll pick up the Book of Mormon or I'll pick up, you know, the Talmud and I'll read this and I'll, you know, kind of draw out what I see from this text. Um, and so that's more of a formal religious, academic, religious study. Uh, in the older traditional sense. And, you know, there's some value in that, but what you miss often in that is, well, how do people who hold this book as sacred interpret it, (laughs) right? right. And that's very different than maybe my own hermeneutical lenses. And so, you know, in academia, we've we've loosened up quite a bit, we've broadened on that. And so, um, you know, this is, you begin to see the insider's, you know, perspective is really important. And so there's been a shift into taking that more into comparative theology is a much more nuanced approach to this, right, where you're doing serious theological work, but taking the insider account of those doctrines or of those sacred texts seriously. Lived religion, so that's still at kind of the formal academic scholarly level. Lived religion, sometimes called folk religion, I, I think that could be a little condescending, so I use lived religion. Right. Um, would be that what is it that makes the person tick? So how I tell my students in, in my class when I have them interview someone from a different tradition is, what gives them joy? What gives them hope during hard times? What gives them meaning or strength? Right. What is it that draws them to this tradition? right to their religious tradition what what animates them you want to get like what makes them tick right. and so live religion would it you know it can include doctrine but it's all kinds of things in terms of the practices right of of different um rituals different holidays uh, the community dynamic like you know for some people you know um you know, an example would be like, well, what does Christmas mean to you? And like, some people will tell you, like, well, Christmas is the time where Advent, where God comes to us. And you know, other people would say, Christmas is about family. <laughs> you know, Christmas is all about family. And yeah, we believe in God and Jesus, but really, when you come down to it, it's Christmas is about holidays with family. And, you know, we do this ritual every year, right? And so, you um, know, other people would be, well, it's about gifts. And we, you know, I love the gifts, you know, and I want the presents. <laughs> And so one of the lived religion will say, a lived religious experience or approach will say, let's try to find out what from the person on the inside, what is it that, um, that their experience is like, what gives them joy or what gives them um, orientation in the world in the midst of chaos, right? And so a lived religion will take that more into consideration, regardless of what you think of it. Right. Right. So I may not agree that what they're doing is efficacious, you know, in terms of God's grace or in terms of, you know, connection to to God or spirituality or whatever. Whether I agree with it or not is not the question. The question is, first and foremost, what is their account? What's their experience? What's giving them um, what's drawing them to their to their tradition And, and what is it doing to them and for them?
0: Yeah, when I saw your chapter, um, I really resonated with it because when I was in seminary years ago, Salt Lake Theological Seminary, uh, I came across—I was—I was trying to come at Mormonism from different angles mm-hmm. uh, rather than just the evangelical doctrinal focus. As, as important as that is, there—it there, seemed to me there was more. Right. And I came across an article in Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, by a folklorist who had written about. Uh, the imagery that is present on many times uh, the tombstones of Mormons who have died, and it includes temple imagery, Uh, the temple itself, clasped hands, shaking, and this type of thing. And the the point of the article was we can learn more about Latter-day Saints and their lived religion by looking at things like that. So it dawned on me at that time, there's so much more there that we can look at. So how did you come to to select and, and stumble upon looking at uh sacred uh you know temple garments specifically when this has been an area that unfortunately sometimes evangelicals have have made fun of right. parodied and ridiculed and for latter-day saints it's something that's very sacred and they're many times reluctant to discuss
1: yeah yeah i'm glad you pointed that out because yeah you know and doing this podcast if someone's listening and you know right. they have a Mormon and friend but don't really know much about it i'm I'm not advocating you just walk up out of the blue and say, so tell me about your, you know, your temple garments, because it is right. a secret thing, right? Right. Um, yeah. And there is, there's a lot of mystery um, around that. And, you know, outsiders will often say, well, Mormons have all these secrets. And I think that it's probably better to say that the, this is sacred to them. And so mm-hmm. you don't want to take something sacred and desecrate it or pull it out into the, you know, under the into the street and say, let's just talk about this, you know, like, you know, you have to get access to it. Um, I, how I came into it is one through this, um, like I was saying, I'm not against doctrinal, uh, formal doctrinal, you know, conversations. That's largely how the, our Mormon evangelical dialogue has Mm -hmm. been centered over the years. And I've been pushing more and more over the years, like, let's get into hymnody. It's how, what songs right. are used to, right? right? I'm pushing into, you know, this, this materiality, material culture, like symbols on tombstones and things like that. Um, and sometimes that's gone well. Other times people are like, well, we want to kind of stick with the, you know, doctrinal. That's fine. Um, so um, coming back to your question. Um, so one of the things was, is it was conversations with people like Spencer Fluman, um, where he would, he's a, if people don't know Spencer, an incredible human being, just wonderful, wonderful uh, man and uh, human being. And he was just very frank in one of our conversations, just saying, you know what? Like, I don't, I don't want to quote what he said just because I haven't asked his permission. But right. it hewed me up to say, like, we are missing the lived, the heartbeat of LDS faith because we keep only talking about doctrinal issues and trinity and christology and and obviously the latter-day saint tradition has different views on these things and and it's also not a tradition that is um, uh, where doctrine or theology is central right you don't have byu doesn't have a theology department they have a religious studies department Right. Mm-hmm. And right. it just, it, it would be similar, I guess, for those who are coming from like outside the LDS community, it would be like a Pentecostal tradition. Yes. You do have Pentecostal theologians now, but it's not, that wasn't really indigenous to the tradition, right. It's about the right. experience of the spirit in worship with the community, you know? And so uh, the conversation with Spencer really cued me up to say, man, I think we're missing things. And um missing the heartbeat. And so the, our Mormon, you know, counterparts, our friends are happy to have conversations. I think they benefit and they learn from it as do we, but it's kind of like really like, like I kept seeing like these comments from Spencer and Bob and others kind of like, kind of queuing up like, Hey, like here's really where the, where the, where the, you know, the, the jackpot where the gold mine is, is over here in terms of our, like why we are Mormon. You know, and it's not because the beautiful symmetry of a theological, you know, uh, you know, creed or, you know, statement, it's it's somewhere else. It's in the lived experience. So that was one. The other piece is that Colleen McDaniel had a sociologist who does a lot with material culture, had done this incredible research. And I would love to reproduce it at some level where she'd interviewed 30 to 40 Latter-day Saints around their experience of the garment and that opened me up that gave me access to insider accounts Mm -hmm. right lds folks what is this garment what does it mean to them why you know how do they uh, what does it do in terms of enriching them what is taught to them about by the church by about the garment but also there's the kind of the this is what the uh, a religious tradition like the the latter-day saint uh, authorities will say this is what We intend this formation to do to people. But then you have the whole other side of, well, how is it appropriated into your life? (laughs) Right. Right. And um, so like for Protestants, we we teach a Trinitarian doctrine. But in your life, you know, you may focus a lot more on Jesus in your prayer life. And Jesus gets a lot more airtime than the Father or the Spirit. Right. right. If you're Pentecostal, you're probably going to get, you know, maybe it's, you get more spirit airtime in your prayers, mm-hmm. you know, and not so much, you know, whatever. So that lived appropriation piece, she gave me access to, at least to those 30 or 40 Mormons that she interviewed um, uh, into what was their experience, their lived religion, and particularly connected with the garment. And that was like, here, now I can do theological reflection where it's not just – a sacred book or a right. doctrine right but i also i do have that but i also you know the latter-day saint teachings and then also scripture but also now i have another source uh, you know for theological reflection of the lived experience of these 40 latter-day saints and you know we can't extrapolate for everyone every latter-day saint is reflected in those views but it can tell me about those mormons you know with their experiences so that was kind of the how these convergence of of you know personal experiences kind of not dissatisfaction but a little bit like man i i just think we do a lot better if we gave in more lived religious experience uh more inquiry into that and i think we can go further in a, really understanding our brothers and sisters from the latter-day saint community and when i did it or before i wrote the chapter i'd done the research i did a 20-minute presentation to um our mormon friends when we gathered they talked i'm not kidding you 45 minutes maybe an hour amongst themselves with us present uh, in light of what i said and they were like we never talk about this well wow. and so they had i learned so much from that conversation they encouraged me like they came alive i'm like wow we need to you know i'm like looking around like the other other evangelicals in the room like see this is what i'm trying to say like right, right. There's, there's some good stuff here <laughs> not that i that wasn't because what i said it's been like it just kind of like i don't know it was like a spring that you kind of take the cap off of the of a, of a well or whatever and it just started bubbling up and they were very interested in talking more so um and sharing their experiences so that's yeah, a little yeah. bit of like how that came
0: about. But. Yeah, it obviously resonated with them. And I just want to emphasize for listeners and viewers the, the importance of, of not only looking at the sacred texts of something like Mormonism, but actually having conversations with people on the ground, you know, an academic where they would call that doing the field work. Uh, yeah. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the projects I did was uh, some ethnographic field work with Mormons who also had a dual religious identity and that they combined their Mormonism with the practice of pagan, paganism, and Wicca. In fact, one of them had coined the term Morwix, and it was fascinating to do this, these interviews, because you're you're getting at a level that you just can't hit if you're just looking at the official religious texts of a religious tradition and what they officially teach, and, and it, so it broadens our understanding, and it helps us to understand others as they understand themselves and practice this lived religion, so Right. It's tremendously important. Um, you mentioned Spencer Fluman. Um, Spencer uh, has been flying out with me before the pandemic. We did a couple of years worth of dialogues in Portland, and uh, it would through his openness uh, with the other folks, we've tried to cover some new ground. We we did uh, start uh, one of our dialogues with uh, various hymns and t- unpack the significance of what the music means in our religious communities. So. We're trying to experiment and kind of broaden this dialogue, so I'm certainly yeah. I'm with you in that. Um, yeah. you, you you talked about uh, how you you came to develop this interest in writing the chapter. What kinds of things did you learn? What what stuck out for you as you began this research process?
1: Yeah, so there were new things that I learned about um, about the Latter Day Saint community and and its experiences and teachings, and there were new things that I learn about myself and my own evangelical community. And so those things around what I learned about the Latter-day Saint community, um, one is really the centrality of the temple. <clears throat> and the temple as uh, the late Gordon B. Hankley used to, would said is that um, the temple represent the utmost in our theology. And there's something about the temple that is, uh, yeah, that is central. You can't really understand at least mainstream mormonism without the temple um and um and so in terms of that being the place where the literally the veil between heaven and earth is, is found and so um that is a very sacred place that's why they don't just open it up to anybody although somebody put a hidden camera you can watch on youtube someone posted a video of like which makes me yeah it's just very dishonoring um yeah. and um but anyway it's 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 very sacred to them this is a place where um yeah where, uh yeah where god is is for them is especially present and experienced the other thing that is um, really interesting is that when you think when you learn about what happens in the temple that, that is made known to us outsiders um, is that really what you what you have is that the temple, like let's just take the practice of baptisms for the dead, um, um, or baptism by, by proxy. And what happens is you come into the temple and, um, as a, as a Latter-day Saint. And, um, from my understanding that you take the name on of someone else who has deceased, who's deceased, and you will be baptized on their behalf. Right. And, The reason why that is, is that for Latter-day Saints, you can, after this mortal life, after you've died and your mortal existence has ended, you can receive more of the fullness of the gospel in that next life. And so by Latter-day Saints now um, engaging in this baptism for the dead, they are making it possible for these people who have died to have, to receive more of the fullness of the gospel but it has to be married to or present with an actual physical baptism with a body so you're making that possible so you aren't saving them but you are participating in in god's work through what the latter day saints would say through the the atoning work of jesus you participate in that you don't save them jesus does but you can play a role in that and so what you I, i began to understand was like Oh, my goodness, when you come into the temple, when Latter-day Saints come into the temple, it's not just learning new things, not just a personal devotional time, although there there is room for that. You are active participants in in worship of God in this redemptive drama. Now, you and I as as evangelicals will have a different um, view of that redemptive drama sure mortal existence before we walk. Well, we don't really not, we're not so sure about that. That doesn't quite line up. And we have a different view of, of the fall. It's not a fortunate fall. And, you know, and then the eschaton, you know, it's, it's a bit different, you know, like for us, but just stepping back and just saying, when I come into church on Sunday, do I actually, uh, understand what I'm doing in church as participating in this larger mm-hmm redemptive work of God in the world or am i just kind of coming in waiting for i hate this sermon or i don't like that you know like does does actual worship in the sanctuary is it in any way a part of this larger redemptive work of God in the world and so you know for me i was like wow that's going on for them and i know i'm jumping into what i've learned about myself but that's one of those points where I, wow you know like that's i don't agree with the cosmology or the efficaciousness of what happens in the temple but there is a sense of holy envy there right that was Um, my
0: question yeah that, that what do you envy about it what is that holy envy yeah
1: yeah right in terms of worship that matters right that i am an active agent in god's redeeming work in the world right and um and how that needs to play itself out as a protestant it will be different but right, still right. you know the other the last piece i'll just say both for the um uh for what i learned about the latter day saint and then reflected back on my own community the other is so the temple garment or the garment that the mormons wear it have the same markings that are in the temple sacred uh, sacred markings and um and you, Mormons will get the garment, they'll, they'll start to wear the garment after their first uh, endowment ceremony at the temple, their first temple visit. They, from that day forth, they will wear that garment uh, underneath their other clothes, against the body, nothing else in between, um, for the rest of their lives. But the what that garment is doing, what I've, at least from what I've gathered in my conversations and eth- ethno- ethnographic research um, and then Colleen McDaniel's interviews, is that what that, wearing that garment fosters, I'm not gonna say it's a straight line, it does this for every Mormon this way, but um, that's going too far, but what it can cultivate is a temple-centered spirituality, right? The sacredness of the temple and of you as you know a child of God is perpetuated um, by wearing putting on this garment every day right mm-hmm. and um, yes there's folklore and things that are out there about the garment giving certain protection and you know right. against temptation but also against harm you know there are a lot of different kind of meanings the official meaning from the church the kind of you know folklore within the community and then the personal meanings but just to step And we can go into that more, the three different levels of of meanings, but um, just understanding the materiality of the of the Latter-day Saints religious experience as an evangelical. What do you have that anything? I mean, maybe you wear a cross that's a physical reminder, right, Uh, that helps foster a kind of spirituality that's centered on Christ. There's we're we're very anti material. Like we threw all that off. Right um, at you know when at, at the Reformation, it's all you know superstition and get rid of icon. You know, right. It's all it's all icon. It's all you know. Um, yeah, it's 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 you know superstition. We need to be you know legalism or whatever we need to get rid of. And the closest thing I can come when I teach my, when I tell my students is the closest thing I can think of to something like this is this wedding ring. And like the un- unfortunate thing is I don't take it off, but assuming I took it off every day when I put this on, there's a possibility for me to take on again, this identity of being the man and the husband I, I covenanted to be to my wife eight and a half years ago. And what kind of husband am I going to be? Am I going to live into that? Oh, those oaths that I made. That's the only thing in my life that (laughs) is anything close to being what the Latter-day Saints have. Right. So it doesn't mean I'm going to go wear the garment myself or create, but it helps me understand how, um, how anti-material, anti-body, like, and really kind of how suspicious I, you know, my community is of anything kind of ritual like that.
0: Right? right.
1: And there is, again, a sense of holy envy, not that I'm going to adopt their practice, but if you look out through most of church history and around the world today, we evangelicals in the West are the anomaly when it comes right. to materiality of not even our pastors. I mean, they, you know, they're wearing khakis and the latest, you know, sneakers and whatever. Um, and, I you know, I'm not going to throw a bunch of stones at everybody for that, but I'm just saying, let's, can we be honest about this, right? right? And particularly for Mormons or evangelicals who want to see Mormons, you know, come into the evangelical community, you're asking them to basically become disembodied. It's a massive move.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Like what do you have? You know, one of my friends who's a Muslim who was a Muslim and converted to Christianity, you know, he, you know, he said that um he didn't have the five prayers a day, he didn't have the structure anymore. So he was going to every single prayer service, Bible study he could, because there was structure that he lost and that he lost when he converted to evangelicalism. There wasn't that kind of structure to help foster spirituality in a Christian way that was there for him. And um, so I, it's gotten me thinking a lot more, both in terms of what I learned about Latter-day Saints, but also about being just a little bit more self-reflective around my own uh, community and our approach to spirituality. How do we foster spirituality? <clears throat> and um, what role does ritual body, you know, uh, our bodies, materiality play in that?
0: Yeah, self-criticism is a great thing. Self-reflection. I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, we often uh, don't think about in terms of religious switching, it's just, well, just get rid of the old doctrine, get the new and you're good to go. But there's so much more associated with religious commitments and the culture and and all that. And how do you account for that in that process? Uh, yeah. So
1: yeah,
0: that's something we need to be thinking about. I think more those of us who, who do want to help those who are making the transition. And I, I would imagine it's, uh, it's also difficult for evangelicals going into Mormonism. Uh, it's might, must be something of a culture shock. So, yeah, I, I don't know how they they do it. Would you say a little bit to to uh, evangelicals about why the way you have approached this subject matter is is important and the better way to go? Evangelicals tend to when we get news announcements of a new temple under construction. Once it's built, we tend to get a small group that will go and they pick it and hold up signs and and protests. And it's an expose kind of approach. Um, Years ago, I was uh, a guest speaker at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. And I don't even know if it's still there anymore, Northern California in the Bay Area. And I was appalled uh, in looking at some of the uh, visitor display tables. Somebody had uh, Mormon uh, temple garments up uh, on a hanger, like an expose. Look at what they wear, and I, I addressed it publicly when I got up at the uh, at the pulpit. Said it was just inappropriate for us to be doing that to our religious neighbors. There are better ways to approach it. What yeah. would you say to evangelicals about we don't have to agree with what others hold sacred? You've already you know spoken to that. We can disagree with it, but but to, to respect what they hold sacred, even through that disagreement? Why is this kind of approach a better, maybe even a more Christian way to do things?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think one of the things you need to, um, just we just need to name, and that is the, the approach to evangelism, particularly towards new religious movements, and you know way more about this, John, than I do, uh, but particularly Mormons, those who are closest to us, right? Mormonism is a, our Latter-day Saint, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints of of Jesus Christ um, grew out out of traditional Christianity. And so there's a, from its inception, there's been a lot of um, uh, fear and um, really um, suspicion and hostility from mainstream Protestants um, against uh, Latter-day Saints um so why is this important i think we need to name that and say that what we've inherited um from walter martin and others um and uh, david hunt and uh, others is actually um yeah it's it's hmm, it's unhelpful and at times at least i won't say with them but at least those who have make use of those resources from david hunt and um Walter Martin, is, is not Christlike, And um, our goal is, as a Christian, I understand our goal is to be a witness, a pointer to Jesus Christ. And not someone who polices the boundaries, right? Um, Jesus, if you look at the Gospels, and you wrote, you've written on this many times, but even just taking the woman at the well. Jesus is much, much less interested in policing the boundary between Jews and Samaritans, right, and Samaritans would be pretty similar to Mormons today, right, they are, they're, they're Jewish, but they're kind of half, you know, ethnically half breeds, and then they're Jewish in terms of religion, but kind of half, they have their own Torah, they have their own place of worship. And so really, it is kind of the threat level of latter day saints, like what they are us, but they aren't us. Jesus is very uninterested in policing the boundaries between Samaritans and Jews. And he's very interested in identifying the ways in which um, that, uh, she, that, that woman is thirsting for eternal life. And in order to get there, he honors her. He comes as a guest into her space and honors her by asking her to serve him, which um, I mean, particularly in the Me Too movement, we gotta be careful on this to, to say, in that culture, in that time, to be a host is to be hospitable is a great honor, right? This wasn't like just a man saying telling the woman what to do. This was an honoring of her. And her being uh, the Samaritan woman being someone who is despised within her own community because of her, seems, um, her own uh, sexual history. She's coming at the middle of the day, the heat of the day. All the women of higher class would have come in the cool of the morning to get the water from the well. So there's all these things. So Jesus is coming in. Trying to not police the boundary, but to identify where this woman is is thirsting, to honor her. And get, he gets access to walking alongside to that thirst because of the way he approached as a guest, as one with need, as one seeking to honor her. And so you can look at many examples of this, you know, um, just every time Jesus is talking about a Samaritan and their faith or being the hero of the story, right? The good right. Samaritan. Yeah. And um, and so what we're after is um and this is where I think the doctrinal studies is helpful, but the doctrinal only approach isn't helpful. And you you can tell this from your interviews um with um would you say Morwicks, is that the goal is to identify the Holy Spirit is already at work before we're before we go in it. We don't bring the Spirit of God with us. The Spirit of God is already at work. What we do is we point to Jesus. We can bring a message right so paul peter with cornelius in acts 10 is a good model the holy spirit's already active in cornelius's life before peter is you know he's still dreaming he's still having this vision he shows up and sees that power and the work of the spirit and he does bring a message but he comes in needing to be attuned to the spirit's work in that person's life that's what our model is and so the lived religion approach we still hold the dog. We you know, it's helpful to know what Mormons believe, it, but it's always, I hold it loosely in light of, let this person tell me about their faith, their religious faith and their experience of being a Latter-day Saint. And the doctrine should not be a blinder, but it's a conversation point. Like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like uh, with the Morwicks, Huh. You know, tell me more about that. Or how does that line up with, you know, did you, how do you, rec- you know, how did you come to that point? being raised in you know because mormons my understanding tends you know the church teaches this right and so but it's not a blinder it's not shaming them for not adhering and and so this approach really allows i would just say i think maybe one way to say succinctly is that it it puts us in the position of discerning how is the spirit at work in them and in the space between us and them
0: Mm -hmm.
1: how is the spirit actually convicting forming shaping you in that space. And so that's why I, I think this approach is, is um, that's what I teach my students. Um, <laughs> I try to ingrain in them. This is I want you to have this kind of approach with Mormons, you know, Muslims, whoever it may be.
0: Yeah, I also think it's uh, important just as a PS to that. Um, one uh, scholar, an evangelical that I've uh, learned from quite a bit over the years, Terry Mock, uh, used to be at Asbury Theological Seminary. He's written a lot on uh, dialogue. He's been involved in Christian Buddhist dialogue for years. And in one of his articles, he's defining what interreligious dialogue is. And one of his definitions is an an attitude or a way of life. So yes, in one sense, it's an approach. But my hope is that it can also be something to evangelicals and other Christians. It's just it's an attitude that we bring to relating to the other. And it's a way of life in which we relate to others who happen to be in a different religious tradition. So yeah. uh, th- there's much there to, to unpack
1: the imagery that his wife, Francis Ademey gives yes. is that is of a gift exchange. Yeah. So you're coming to your, your Latter-day Saint friend. What are you offering? But also what, what, what are you expecting to receive? They have gifts to give to you too. And so when you think about evangelism or witness or relationships in that, not just, I have this, but I got to tell somebody, but actually like, hold up, you know, we actually maybe wait until you can think through and identify what do you have to learn or benefit or gain from them and maybe hold up, put a pause on trying to give your gift until you've, the spirit has shown you what you can receive from them. I find Francis, that just that simple imagery, um, graceful evangelism book that she wrote, like that's worth the whole price of the book. It's just that image itself. Oh, it's so simple. But it's it's it takes a kind of rewiring yeah. to live into. Yeah.
0: And it's not much of a gift if you have to force the gift on people, if they don't actually want to embrace it and open it up. So many times I think we're forcing things on others. But um one other question related to your your chapter in the book, as a result of your study and lived religion and, and looking at this uh, Mormonism through a different lens. Uh, whether or not the academic dialogues uh, incorporate this in whatever venues in which this evangelical Mormon dialogue takes place, what would you like to see about other lenses and and topics and frameworks that we bring to this where we can have additional conversations and come to understand each other in uh, different ways beyond what we've done in the past? Yeah.
1: Well, one of them, I mean, I'm not just trying to, um, you know, uh, stroke your ego here but i mean the the generous orthopathy right and that what i found that whole area is just very very important because as i've been teaching students you know here at calvin and before that over at fuller um, so it's been probably 8 9 years i've been working on this teaching other students the biggest block is the affective it's the it's the it's the it's the emotions it's the it's the fear of contamination or compromise It's that anxiety that I spoke about earlier watching these apologetic people you know um and the affective right the the emotions has so much to do with um I mean I would actually say that's the most important part of what I could I try to teach (laughs) Mm -hmm. they I could you know I can put on their shelves the books that they need to have when they need to go like and Muck and and uh Netlin wrote a great book on the religious handbook Handbook of religion up there with Muck, uh, Netland, and uh, McDermott. It's Mm -hmm. great, you know, and that'll give you all the facts and, you know, history and all that in there and it's written by practitioners of the religion, different religions and evangelicals. But really, it's the affective side that is so, so underplayed and it's so vital. Um, And I kind of came to that realizing, and I love my students, but, like, just thinking through... At first, when we taught, I'm realizing like, man, this person got an A in my class, but it was more on the cerebral cognitive side. Mm -hmm. And I realized I got to change this because I don't think that person would actually be the most effective or gracious with a person of another religion. So then I tried to try to think through what are some other ways. And one of those areas is this like the, the emotions and how do we allow the light of the gospel to shine on our biases, our fears, our, um, our anxieties, right? The, all that stuff, that is what shapes, you know? And so I would love to see more work, you know, um, done in that area. Um, and then, then transit, yes, the other thing would be finding ways, you know, of how do we empower local churches to cultivate or take on practices, like actual practices that foster orthopathy, like a a generous orthopathy? Not just talking about it, but what are practices that help us live into those virtues, right? So um, Sarah uh, Shady and Marian Larson wrote a book, um, Bubble to Bridge, and their two language, uh, two terms that I really love from them is uh, receptive humility and reflective commitment. And I, I hang my kind of my course on that, like I'm trying to help students cultivate the capacity for receptive humility and reflective commitment. And that is humble, but to receive, to learn from um, from the person we're interacting with about them, but also about our own faith, our own, you know, like, wow, why, why do I hold this kind of Christology, you know, or the you know, or why do, you know, why don't I have more materiality in my religion right reflective commitment is the other part of that is i still hold on to jesus and the gospel and scripture even more tightly than i did before more it's more vital to me so it's both of those so practices for local congregations because you you know this john like i talked to pastors even very you know solidly theologically reformed pastors and this whole area of interfaith or interreligious engagement, multi-faith engagement is not at all on their radar in terms of importance of discipleship. And I just feel like I don't know how the church can be faithful to Jesus in this context and this time without much more explicit discipleship formation that hits at you know a generous orthopathy, right? Receptive humility reflective commitment, like those practices. So more work on the affective resources, but really making sure we're hitting the ground in terms of empowering discipleship and, and local churches.
0: Well, good advice. And I'll continue my work in partnership with folks like you to hopefully see that done more. Um, yeah. You, We've been talking about the great book, Talking Doctrine. There'll be a link in the program notes, but I also want to give you a, A moment here as we close to tell folks about your new book, Work and Worship, that you co-authored with uh, Matthew Kamek.
1: Yeah, yeah, so switching gears a little bit, I know where you and I are both a bit eclectic in our desires. There is a lot of overlap, and that is the issue of growing out of um, Matt and I both growing up um, in in churches that we loved, uh, but really did not have much to say uh, in terms of the lived realities of even our parents. My dad was an auto shop teacher. His dad was a contractor his mom was a nurse my mom was a, uh, a secretary and um, really what you see over and over again every year was you know we have missions Sunday we put up the map of the world and we put a pin where the missionaries were serving throughout the world um, that, that our church is supporting on that and we'd bring in a missionary on on furlough to preach and the sermon was on Matthew 28 and it really helped cultivate and keep alive this commitment to, you know, serving you know, to overseas mission and the mission of God. But the problem was, is I got older realizing, what about my dad, my mom, you know, Matt's dad, my co-author, his mom, do they have a, a place in God's mission in the world? Or is it only for those elite missionaries and maybe for the pastors and everyone else just makes money to give, to serve these kingdom causes? And um, so there's a lot in there, but really what we're trying to get at is Yes, we provide the theology. There's already been a lot uh, written on the faith and work movement to kind of get rid of the dichotomy of saying missionaries and pastors are the ones who are involved in God's mission. And that's what real worship is. And everyone else, it's not really worship. and It's not really part of God's mission. We do the theology. But what's missing, again, in um, having done the ethnography with workers from a bunch of different, you know, vocations What's missing is practices within the church. So particularly our gathering practices. And what I found in interviewing probably 80 workers uh, about their experiences of work and worship was that that those Christians who had active practices of bringing out of their work week the joys, the sorrows, the laments, the petitions from their work into the sanctuary— They were the ones that had the most deeply integrated spirituality. So, for example, you know, um, Jamie Smith, wonderful philosopher, he says that if all of life is to be worship, the sanctuary is where we learn how. So that is that what we do on Sunday when we gather, gather for worship forms us to live out a week of worship, a different way of living in the world based on God's economy not the economy of grasping, but the economy of abundance of God's generosity. What I actually found from doing the ethnography though, is while I agree with the formation that can take place, that does take place of the sanctuary, the most vital piece from talking to these and doing the ethnography work, these workers was if I would say it this way, if the sanctuary is to be formative, workers must bring their work into the sanctuary. So one quick example, a woman speech therapist works at a local uh, hospital working with stroke victims and she has really stressful work. And, um, and I asked her, what gives you strength or joy or you know, it, to do your work? It's very hard work. And without missing a beat, she said the benediction. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I always have my clients in mind, my patients in mind. And when their face comes to mind, I just say a prayer and you know, say, God, you know, heal them, but also give me wisdom on what kind of treatment plan they need. And, um, and she said, when I hear the benediction, I hear God say, go out and serve them on my behalf. So here's something intuitively, no one taught her to do that. She's bringing the, 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 the hardships and the petitions and the longings out of her work week into the sanctuary, and that shapes how she hears the sermon, how she sings the songs, how she responds to God with lament or confession or petition, and is empowered to then go live life, right, in in a way that is reflective of God's you know, plan. So our book is really trying to cultivate practices like you know Jessica, the speech therapist, so that we we are actively cultivating an understanding of we are a priesthood of all believers, and our workplace is our parish, and so we actively our our work as a priest is not just to represent God to people there, but to also bring all those those experiences. Into the worship as a priest and lift them up to God. And that will, that the worship when it does that acts like a heartbeat to gather and scatter God's people, all of God's people, to participate in God's mission in and through their daily work, wherever God has placed them in the home, outside the home, for pay, and wherever God has placed you to put your creative culture making gifts, you know, service gifts to use. So. That's a little bit about what the
0: book's about. That's yeah, well, it sounds awesome. We'll include a link in the program notes to that volume as well and hopefully help get word out. And uh, Corey, I just appreciate it. I know you're real busy and uh, with your academic responsibilities. And you told me beforehand, you got some remodeling uh, at Calvin going on. So you, you things are kind of crazy right now. But uh, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time and our common passion that we have for uh, trying to understand people in other religions and relate to them in a Christ-like way. It's much appreciated.
1: Yeah. Thank you, John. Such a pleasure. And again, I'm such a fan and so grateful for your faithful work for so many years and um, look forward to seeing what you come up with next. So keep me in the loop. (laughs) I will.
0: I'll keep you in the loop and hopefully uh, we can cooperate in a, in a project in the near future. We'll see. Uh, My guest has been uh, Corey Wilson and uh, we've been talking about talking doctrine and his other projects And uh, I thank my guests and I thank my uh, viewers and listeners. And uh, until the next podcast, thank you for watching and listening.